Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday. We made it through another week. Uh, hard to believe that this is uh, the fir- this was the first full week in uh, November. Hard to believe it was just three days ago um, in the United States. For those of you who are listening here in America, that uh, we had Election Day. Of course, the results are still going on. Hopefully, we'll have a... Um, a winner here soon. Um, nothing worse than, as I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, how 20 years ago uh, with the whole Florida debacle that the um, final decision had um, was finally um, determined or reached, rather, I should say, just uh, shortly before uh, Christmas. But uh, hopefully it won't uh, go that direction because uh, if it does, then it will uh, put a lot of uh, people on edge for all the wrong reasons. But here we are again uh, discussing uh, founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights and the election that saved a nation by Chris DeRose. Now, tonight's podcast, or for wherever you all are, it might be morning, depending on where you are around the world, but nonetheless, uh, the podcast session that we'll be discussing uh, for for founding rivals will focus on... um, the final uh, stages of the uh, Constitution um, implementation, and then how it um, and how the news itself uh, gets uh, spread to uh, the states at large. So, leading off with tonight's bonus question is the following: Were there tense moments during the Constitutional Convention? If any of you out there. Th- think for one second that there weren't any tense moments, um, I think we need to think long and hard. Uh, of course, it would be easy to, to assume that everybody who convened uh, got along and just went about their rosy way by signing a document and you know living happily ever after. I, I hate to tell you that, but the answer is uh, false on that part. But As for the answer about tense moments during the convention, yes, there were uh, a fair share of tense moments. Are tense moments um, a good thing? Well, it depends on uh, the severity of the situation. Uh, Perhaps tense moments could uh, teach lessons to those who um, would hope to not make the same mistakes. Well, I can give you a good example of a tense moment during the Constitutional Convention. It was the following. George Washington, based off of what uh, authors Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diognes wrote about in signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution, mentioned that uh, Washington himself faced a situation um, where a delegate had dropped a a very important sensitive document it turned out that document was a copy of the Virginia plan, and it was a top-secret matter. Well, somebody uh, retrieved the document within the uh, confines of the building, but George Washington was very upset that the incident had happened to where he gave all of the delegates a stern lecture about respecting confidentiality proceedings. So, while this the dropping of this document could have been intention, unintentional. The fact of the matter is that it still had the chance to get um, slipped into the wrong hands. For all we know, there could have been a delegate who could have said, hey, I'm going to pick this paper up, but what I'm going to do is when I leave the building, I'm going to go give it to someone from the outside. So the bottom line is this. It's one thing to misplace something, but you still don't know who whose hands that document could fall into for the wrong reasons. So, you know, here we are worried about safety and security, such as uh, misplacing a document in today's time. Well, in 18th century times, stuff like that happened, and information still in that day and time got into the wrong hands. So I think it was probably good that George Washington gave the delegates a stern lecture about this so that um, it wouldn't happen again. I think that's where his uh, military, um, what do you call it, his uh, military background um, played a good um, force because uh, given that he was commander of the Continental Army, 
in order to be a successful general, he had to discipline his uh, troops firmly. If he didn't, then how could he expect to have any structure, or let alone uh, proper basic structure, in order for a continental army to, um, to be as one rather than as individuals? Other tense moments arose after, seven, after September of 1787 began. Well, what other tense moments could there have been? Well, one element in particular had um, drew a lot of concern to um, a certain number of delegates. It was not a super number, but it was to at least three delegates, two from Virginia and one from Massachusetts. But it caused enough ire, or let alone um, rife, to where these three men ended up not signing the Constitution. The issue that was at stake, or let alone the element, had to do with um, a Bill of Rights. So in other words, the Bill of Rights that we know as being the first Ten Amendments were not put into place in September of 1787. Now, which Virginians were adamant about adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution? The two Virginians that were the most adamant being uh, George Mason and, and uh, Edmund Randolph. Uh, the fellow from Massachusetts who also had these same uh, concerns was a fellow named uh, Elbridge Jerry. Now, for those of you who were um, a part of the um, segment on signing their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of, of Independence, Elbridge Jerry signed that document. But for those of you who are new to my podcasts, especially with this uh, session or topic, let alone, um, if you don't know who Elbridge Jerry is, I can give you some brief information on him. He was a, uh, like I said a moment ago, he was a signer to the Declaration of Independence. But what he is most famous for, or what he will become famous for once after the Republic is established in later years, is that he became known for um, a political practice that is still in use today. It is one of the oldest practices it's probably one of the dirtiest of practices that um, even mo our modern-day um, political parties are equally guilty of doing, not just on the national level, but the state level, being the state government level. The practice is called gerrymandering. It's basically where you take a congressional district and you um, enhance it to the point where you leave out minorities, you are basically favoring a particular race over other um, ethnicities. You are basically, it's, it's basically a, a partisan measure designed to favor uh, the interests from within a party, but also the interests of those who represent a majority of what makes up a, a congressional district at large. Uh, if you take a look at a political cartoon that was done in the early 19th century of Elbridge Jerry's uh, gerrymandering um, strategy, the um, congressional district that was carved out in Massachusetts was like the shape of a salamander. Of course, salamanders aren't big creatures, but this was big. In other words, the district was, it was carved out like one to show just how much uh, favoritism he had for the people that he was representing, but also for those who got left out. So that's a, a brief 101 example of what gerrymandering is all about. But there again, like George Mason and Edmund Randolph, Elbridge Jerry refused, would refuse to sign the United States Constitution because there was no Bill of Rights. In other words, there was no rights listed on... Um, freedom of speech, freedom of, of the press, the right to assemble and petition, uh, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, uh, the right to a um, fair trial, th those kinds of uh, Bill of Rights that we're uh, talking about. 
Now, uh, what's interesting about these three men, I should point out, is that they did uh, come together to try to form a Bill of Rights committee. It's a very bold move, but unfortunately the measure did not receive support from a single state. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are beginning to wonder now, why all of a sudden opposition to a Bill of Rights? Well, there are some unique reasons that I came up with, and I also um, read based off of uh, Krista Rose's book. But there are some um, reasons for why um, a Bill of Rights was not put into play at, in 1787. The delegates, that is, the delegates who had been in Philadelphia, remember 55 delegates came, but not all 55 delegates signed. Um, I won't mention it just yet, but I will tell you all here soon the exact number of delegates who would sign. But we have to remember, too, that the delegates who came to Philadelphia in May of 1787 they had been uh, they had been there for almost five months. Technically, four and a half. We could say about five months to be on the safe side. These men had met six days a week with only two minor recesses, and many of these men were anxious to go back home to sell this document to their constituents, not just the. Uh, you know, the, the people, the everyday people at large, but to be able to sell this document to delegates at home who would, um, who would be uh, chosen to uh, head up their own state conventions for ratifying the document. So the problem, it's not so much a problem, but the issue is that here we are, delegates have been here for five months. They've made enough, they've made a lot of sacrifices to have stayed the entire time. Now, I do know that um, some, some signers, some of the signers didn't arrive till June. Um, I know that John Langdon of New Hampshire didn't arrive till July. So we must remember, too, that not everybody came at the same time. But there again, if you have sacrificed between three to five months of your time, uh, getting a fundamental document like this in play, that's a lot of time you have uh, committed, but you also want to have time to go home and sell this document because the longer you stay in Philadelphia, there's no guarantee that, that in the end when this is all said and done with that you might even come away with a document. So there, there probably needs to be a good stopping point, but at the same time you want to come away knowing that, okay, where we have stopped, we've made progress, but we also came away with a document that, okay, it's not 100% perfect, but we know that, it, that at least we have something to sell to the people. The longer we're there, the more um, impatient the people at home will become. Now, um, here's uh, some other... Um, factors to take into play too. What about the inability to determine exactly what government was and wasn't allowed to do regarding um, safeguarding personal liberties or rights? You know, one of the biggest uh, challenges right here is that, okay, if a bill of if the Bill of Rights had been put into play in 1787, who knows how long the debate on the Bill of Rights alone would have lasted. It probably would have lasted at least maybe a month at best. But as I mentioned a moment ago, if there had been a, a debate on the Bill of Rights, it would have further delayed the delegates' abilities to go forth before their state legislatures for ratification approval to the Constitution. So uh, the bottom line is that, um, yes, it's important that fundamental liberties be addressed, but that's where statesmen would say to the delegates, okay, we get, how, we get your concerns, 
but maybe we need to focus on this at another time. Let's, let's uh, focus on what we've accomplished and let's also focus on, on what we can sell to the constituents and to the other, um, led, and to the other uh, people at home, especially those who make up the state legislature. Now, as for Edmund Randolph of Virginia, he had major hesitations about the Constitution besides an absence to the Bill of Rights. What were some of his hesitations? He distrusted how much power was placed into the hands of the executive. You know, I think for Edmund Randolph, he probably did not like the fact that the executive branch would be comprised of one person. But we must remember, too, that the president alone would not have the power to make laws. That's Congress, or a.k.a. the legislative branch. I think for what Edmund Randolph was concerned about was that there would not be a council of state like there was on the governorship level in Virginia, especially. Well, if you think about it now, folks, in modern-day times, the president does have a cabinet of men. Think about it. He's got a Secretary of State, a Secretary of Defense, a Secretary of Energy, Agriculture, Interior, Commerce, Education, Health and Human Services. He's got a National Security Advisor. Uh, I can name and other. Uh, he's got a Transportation Secretary, Homeland Security, Treasury. So you name it, folks. All those Department of Heads I just mentioned. I think it's safe to say that that's like the equivalent of a, a council of state that was around in 18th uh, century uh, times. But for Edmund Randolph, I can see where he would have been worried about giving an executive being one person too much power because in his eyes, that might as well have been the equivalent of an English monarchy. After all, we had fought a war not too long ago to remove um, kings from having um, too much uh, power on the colonies, especially when it came to um, enforcing laws enacted by Parliament where the infamous taxation without representation um, clause had been put into play where uh, colonists' rights had been trampled upon. So I, I think Edmund Randolph is afraid that we could be going back in that direction. As for George Mason, the other Virginian, he viewed the powers bestowed upon the national government as those which could lead to monarchy or aristocracy. For those of you who wonder what aristocracy means, that means um, basically a government where power is placed in the hands of the few. We're not talking one person like a monarch or a dictator. We're talking about the power in the hands of a select few who could make, the, make all the laws without uh, resorting to a legislative body or even consenting to the people at large. So therefore, those are the reasons why Edmund Randolph and George Mason of Virginia are refusing to um, sign the Constitution. And both men also, well, Edmund Randolph will remain undecided on ratification support in Virginia, but George Mason's made it very clear that he is going to refuse to, to go along with voting. He's going to support voting against the Constitution when he goes back to Virginia. Now, it should be worth pointing out, given that there were seven delegates from Virginia, being George Washington, James Madison, John Blair, Edmund Randolph, George Mason, uh, George Wythe, and... Um, Dr. James McClurg, only three of the seven delegates would sign from Virginia. And I mentioned in the first three I mentioned were the ones who signed, who would go on to sign. I did mention the previous night why George Wythe didn't sign. He had to uh, leave to go back home to Virginia as his wife was ill and sadly she died. Uh, Dr. McClurg did not uh, sign because he, um, when he got to Philadelphia, he became very overwhelmed by all of the tasks and just the scope of the um, 
of the uh, mission itself. He was so overwhelmed that he just no longer, he didn't have patience for it. So now I'm thinking to myself, why did you come along? But remember, folks, he was appointed by Edmund Randolph, who was governor. And the reason for that was because McClurg was one of the most respected physicians in Virginia. He, um, I mean, he was very well known throughout everybody in the state. I think for Edmund Randolph, he felt that maybe this was the right kind of diversity to have, but Sometimes, it's like that old saying goes, sometimes you have to see for yourself that um, either the people you nominate or appoint to, to be a part of something aren't often the right choices. But of course, back in that day and time, he had no way of knowing. But at least we can take comfort in knowing that at least three out of seven delegates from Virginia did sign. It would, be, it would have been a, a travesty if none of them had signed especially Washington and Madison. All right. Here's a bonus question for you all. What's significant about September 17th, 1787? It is the day which the Constitution itself was read aloud to the delegates in attendance, but also the same day which 39 delegates signed the document. I should point out that Edmund Randolph, George Mason, and Elbridge Jerry were in attendance on that day, even though they did, even though they refused to sign. And why so? Because of no Bill of Rights. As for the other thirteen men, I mentioned uh, the other Virginians who were um, who either did not sign or couldn't sign. Th these men. Uh, left early to attend to other personal uh, business obligations or for uh, health reasons involving themselves or that of their spouses. So we can say that the, that those who didn't sign made a good for made a good faith effort to attend. But I do know that a fair number of them did not sign because, um, for one, they feared what the document itself was lacking, or two, they just um, saw it as something that was so overwhelming that um, that they probably just did not have the patience to muster anymore. Now before the convention would end, Benjamin Franklin made the closing made closing remarks. And Franklin did sign the Constitution. It would be his last act of public service that stretched over fifty years. So if you think about it, he's been engaged in public service since the 1730s. After all, folks, he is the oldest member there. He's 81 years old. You know, you think about it. He's he was born in 1706. Um, when he was born, um, Queen it was Queen Anne who was um, rule who was uh, not just uh, the she was the Queen of England. So there was no King George. There was no House of Hanover, basically. Uh, ben Franklin is at least a good 25 years older than George Washington, and he's a good, um, he's almost a good 30 years older than John Adams. Uh, you think about it, Ben Franklin has seen a great deal in his lifetime. And I think it's amazing that also, too, that Ben Franklin will live to see George Washington become our nation's first president. He does live to be 84 years old. He dies three years after in 1790. But the fact that he is alive to sign the Constitution is remarkable. His closing remarks would be echoed for delegates to state to constituents back home, especially the last, the last of his closing remarks, which is very imperative for us to know. Not just to know, but to remember. And this is what he said. This document may not be perfect, but it's the best we can do. All right, if one were to ask me right now, uh, Kirk, how would you best interpret Benjamin Franklin's uh, quote, or quotation, I should say? Here is my response. The document itself provides a playing field for which the national government can operate under, 
but with time will adapt to whatever necessary changes come along so that future generations will have something to guide them through in moments of peace and sorrow on a national level. So remember, folks, the Constitution, you know, first off, it's 233 years old. In 1787, we were in the late 18th century. So if you think about it, the Constitution has lived through the 19th century. It has lived through the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. The Constitution has lived through two and a half to three centuries. The Constitution has seen its share of crises, but yet it has still remained intact, which I find to be a true blessing. There are so many countries in this world who are probably fortunate enough that if they do have a Constitution, it might last them 10 years at best. Now, Thomas Jefferson himself, and I've, I've learned this when going to Monticello, the tour guides have told us that Jefferson himself believed that once the Constitution went into effect, that if it were to survive, it would probably need to undergo revisions every 20 years. Well, there's nothing wrong with revisions, but I think it's fair to say that as amendments have evolved over time and have been added into the Constitution, that might be the closest thing you could get to revisions happening once, say, every 20 years or, or more. But as for what ben Benjamin Franklin said, this document may not be perfect, but it's the best we can do. In other words, we, could, we weren't able to cater to everyone's interests, but we came up with, but we were able to formulate interests and um, plans that will give the American people a basic, what do you call it, a basic um, level of um, a basic playing level field in which they have something to go by. In other words, they will, they will know that, that there will be an executive, a legislative, and a judiciary branch. They will know that, okay, all three branches of government are going to be equal, that there will not be a system in play where one's going to overpower the other to the point where the, the branch of government that's um, struggling to survive could virtually um, cease to exist. But I truly do believe that this was the best they could come up with. And what do you know? The, the best that they were able to come up with has still survived after 233 years. I think our forefathers, even in, even in this day of time where we live in such an unstable world, I think they could take some form of comfort in knowing that the Constitution is still there. All right, here's a, another good bonus question to think about. Who was um, secretary of the convention? Most people don't know it, but I'm going to tell you this. His name was William Jackson. He had the job, or the honorary job, of taking, the doc, of taking a document or a copy of the document to New York City where Congress was stationed. This would mark the beginning step in showing the public or the American people what had taken place for four and a half months behind closed doors. And newspapers, especially throughout Virginia, published the entire Constitution for the public to read at large. The Virginia House of Delegates even paid for the printing and distribution of 5,000 copies. That's a lot of copies. But when you consider just how big of a state Virginia was in 1787, you're going to be uh, transporting copies of people to, um, to um, many of uh, spots throughout the state. Now, did James Madison encounter opposition from people in general regarding the Constitution document itself? Yes. Opposition ranged from politicians in Madison's home state, being Virginia, to New York, where Congress convened. Now, I will admit Madison did encounter people who were in support of it. 
So the bottom line is, is that Madison already had to prepare himself for what was to come. All right, I'm going to encounter people who are going to be very thrilled about this. But at the same time, I'm also going to be encountering those who are going to be very skeptical. So it's basically a double-edged sword that he's going up against. And so Madison is going to have to come up with some strategy on how to curtail this opposition from getting so out of hand that there could that, that it could lead to civil unrest or let alone um, anarchy. So here's my next bonus question. Did any of the supporters behind the Constitution take swift action in defending the document against opposing forces? Yes. Madison himself, along with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, worked together in establishing a series of articles under the pen name Publius starting around October 1787. These articles became known as the Federalist Papers, whose purpose called for ratifying the Constitution along with explaining the purposes for having replaced the Articles of Confederation with something more relevant. And I think it's very smart that these three men came together to establish a handful of articles. Now, I'm not talking a dozen articles, people. They came up with 85 essays total. And they kept at it, even into the year 1788. Because in late 1787, especially towards the end, into 1788... That's where the states were were going back and forth, left and right, with um, getting conventions established for ratification of this document. And in the next podcast, I'm going to be talking more about the Virginia Convention and how um, that whole process um, went about uh, ratifying the Constitution. But for... Madison, Hamilton, and Jay to have worked together in establishing the uh, Federalist Papers was an incredible work of art, and it was smart that they um, did these series of articles under a pen name, because if they had actually written their own names on these articles out in the open, I think those three men could have... um, they could have been wanted um, by those who were in uh, fierce opposition to the point where their lives might as well have been at stake. So the bottom line is you don't want to give away your identity. If you're going to publish articles that you know are sensitive, that run the risk of um, offending those who don't want to go along, then you better write, Then you better uh, be writing the articles under an assumed name or let alone a pen name to ensure not just your safety but that of your families. Now, I'd like to talk about James Monroe here because I'm sure many of you all are wondering what's going on with him. I mean, given that we know he um that you know, he does that he um He felt slighted by the fact that he um, had not been chosen as a delegate to the uh, convention. But what is James Monroe still um, doing? Well, while the Constitution is getting unveiled to the public for the first time, well, he's still thriving as a lawyer. He's still um, doing a lot of good for clients. As a matter of fact, around the same time that the Constitution is getting unveiled to the public at large, He had helped, Monroe himself helped win an appeal for a client whom lost a case at trial over an uncollected debt. But even though he had felt betrayed by not being um, selected as a delegate to the convention, he presses on forward in writing letters to friends supporting the document. Now, I think that's a smart thing there because he's putting aside whatever jealousies um, or anger that he might have expressed earlier in, in realizing, okay, I need to at least show... Some, I'm not doing this to uh, please anyone else, but I'm doing it because my actions um, 
can be viewed by others either for the better or for the worse, but I need to uh, make a good showing because I'm, I, I never know where my assistance could be used down the road in helping, um, uh, what do you call it, in helping um, patch differences between those who are in favor and those who are against the document itself. Another example of where it would not be wise to burn bridges. So in October, or I should say October 25th of 1787, the Virginia House of Delegates passes a resolution calling for a state convention to consider ratification. Well, if, if George Mason and um, Edmund Randolph had doubts about the Constitution itself. My next bonus question to you all is going to be one that will probably knock the socks off of some of you. Which Virginian would become the fiercest critic in opposing the Constitution? None other than Mr. Patrick Henry. Why would Patrick Henry be so afraid of a Constitution, given that he uh, Twelve years earlier, in 1775, at St. John's Episcopal Church at Richmond, gave a passionate speech on declaring independence from Britain. I know, I know not what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. A very, very passionate speech, one for the ages of his time. But why all of a sudden is he... Now doing a 360, a, a 360 reversal for the wrong reasons. Well, for starters, he feared everything about the Constitution and what it stood for. He saw the document as too powerful where power itself would get placed into the hands of the few versus the many. I will tell you this. I, I do think it's fair to say that Patrick Henry himself would be considered a libertarian by today's standards. In other words... Government could not put its hands on anything. Government uh, was basically to stay out of the lives of people, big and small. Okay, well, government shouldn't be trampling on, ev on everyone's personal liberties, but at the same time, government does have a purpose. Patrick Henry even went as far as denouncing the, uh, the preamble to the Constitution, where it says, we, the people of the United States, provide for um, the common defense and the general welfare. He um, denounced that, that um, saying because he basically said something like, who gave, per, who gave the authority to allow the people to provide for these measures? Well, to me, we, the people, means that, that everyone in unison agrees that that the people themselves are to provide for the common defense that is through their elected um, representatives Patrick Henry didn't see it that way he probably wasn't the first and was not going to be the last at, at this point in time to see things that way basically uh, Patrick Henry uh, still a uh, still would have wanted the Articles of Confederation to have existed if he had it his way. Now, did those whom opposed the Constitution go as far as advocating for a second convention? Believe it or not, yes. James Madison, though, viewed, viewed a second convention as fatal to our nation's general welfare and security, and absolutely right, because if a second convention had happened, we might as well have... Uh, started back where we were under the Articles of Confederation. James Madison knew that there was no second guessing. We had to get this right the first time in terms of getting a better government established in place over what was already existed, over what was already in existence that um, was no longer relevant. Madison knew that the 1787 convention prevailed because of the sacrifices that all the delegates present um, made given that the national interest was put ahead of a regional affairs and personal ambitions. So basically, Madison knew from his observations and note-takings 
that people did find ways to come together, uh, north, middle, south, or I should say northern, middle, and southern states, all coming together. Matter of fact, um, a John Rutledge of South Carolina was um, very big on compromising. And yes, you, I could see how when you take a state like South Carolina, South Carolina is very heavily dependent on uh, slaves, on the, on the slave trade itself, or let alone uh, the practice. But John Rutledge found other um, resources or avenues to um, find common ground with delegates from, say, as far north as Massachusetts and New Hampshire to uh, ensure that uh, whatever was achieved would be meant to benefit the, um, the American people as a whole. So for 39 men to put their own lives on the line and sign this document, that says a lot right there. They had sacrificed their own personal ambitions. Remember, folks, nobody walked away with all the marbles. Everyone came away with something big and small. But by coming away with something big and small, these 39 men achieved the ultimate um, dream, and that was to ensure that a, that, a, that a national government would take the place of a weak government where the national government under, where the government <laughs> under the Articles of Confederation, whatever national government there was, ceased to exist because the states controlled everything. Had we not convened in May of 1787, I'm not sure if we even would have a United, St United States today. You know, it's easy to think, well, when we signed the Declaration of Independence, didn't we already declare ourselves free from England? Yes, but the, the document itself didn't mean anything unless we had actually defeated the British in battles, military battles on the field. It didn't mean anything until, say, Britain had um, surrendered to us at Yorktown, or let alone when the Treaty of Paris was done in 1783, where Britain would be forced to cede land that she had uh, claimed in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. So we have to remember that it's one thing to have a document in place, but documents themselves don't mean anything until other things take place that have significant achievement, especially as to what I've just mentioned a moment ago pertaining to the Declaration of Independence. The, Con the United States Constitution itself doesn't have any true meaning until, and, until, for starters, when you have 39 men sign the document, but it doesn't become, it, it, it already is meaningful, but it doesn't, it doesn't garner a greater significance until the states ratify the document. Because once the states ratify the document, then it will become a legally binded document that, uh, ensure, that basically is the the document that um, binds us as one, and it binds us to, to a, a government. Would James Monroe, what I want to tell you all is this, James Monroe um, had mixed views about the Constitution. He would become an a more ardent supporter to the Constitution as the Virginia Ratification Convention grew closer. In other words, he was glad to know that the uh, delegates had walked away with something that they could present to their constituents per, their, per the states that they represented. James Monroe knew just how hard the delegates had worked in Philadelphia to come away with a document that wasn't totally perfect, but was also one which couldn't have been any better. 
He knew that the Constitution itself was better than having nothing, being an anarchy. Was James Monroe concerned, what was he concerned the most regarding the Constitution and what it did not provide? Well, what did, um, remember folks, what did um, George Mason, Edmund Randolph, and Elbridge Jerry all um, agree about that was uh, missing? The Bill of Rights. Was James Monroe concerned about the lack of a Bill of Rights. Absolutely. But for Monroe, he didn't uh, point it out as a Bill of Rights. What he was concerned about were the lack of uh, fundamental liberty protections, given that there were none already uh, placed into the document itself. For example, James, given that James Monroe was a lawyer, there was nothing mentioned about the right to a fair trial or to a trial by jury. So for James Monroe, he's very concerned about how people are going to be um, tried in the court of law. He already knows that if one can afford a lawyer, that's great. But he's also concerned about the fact that, okay, what if somebody can't afford a lawyer? Then how, are he, how, are he, how will he or she go about being represented? Monroe, James Monroe himself also had hesitations about the national government's ability to tax, which he believed could bring about hostilities or let alone civil unrest among the government and its people. So I think for James Monroe, he's probably concerned about, um, about there not being another um, Shays Rebellion incident. You know, taxation is something that is very sensitive, and I think for Monroe, he doesn't want there to be another episode or situation where um, people get taxed without proper consent. James Monroe personally knew that the Articles of Confederation were weak and had to be replaced, but he, at the same time, he was very hesitant and pledging full 100% support, given that the Constitution had lacked a plan for safeguarding people's personal or let alone fundamental liberties without, without how do I say it, a little tongue twister here, folks, pardon me, but without the personal liberties, Monroe himself couldn't see how government itself would become effective in maintaining proper boundaries. So in other words, I'll give you another good example right here. One of our uh, Ten Amendments, or Bill of Rights, is the following. The right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. What does that mean? Okay, well, for starters, if you suspect that someone is doing something illegal, you need to have probable cause to ensure that whatever John Smith is doing is in fact a um, violation, not just a violation on the part of John Smith, but it's an action that could be um, endangering the community or you know the, the greater public at large. So, in order for there to be probable cause, you would you know for one somebody would have to invest go undercover to investigate, but once the investigator himself has garnered up or gathered enough evidence to say, hey, John Smith is doing these illegal activities. Do we have enough probable cause to, um, to warrant a, um, or gather what's called a, a search warrant? In other words, if I, if I do have enough evidence to, um, where a search warrant can be validated, then I can go into a, then I could arrive to John Smith's home and say, hey, we have evidence to believe based on um, probable cause that you are um, engaging in these illegal activities. So basically, this is an example here of where James Monroe feared that government could come into people's homes and make accusations about individuals doing things that... Um, in their eyes, might be deemed inappropriate, but at the same time, if the evidence isn't um, 
substantial, then it's a direct violation of um, search and seizure. In other words, you uh, did not have enough probable cause to make an arrest to the point where you have infringed upon, um, in this case, John Smith's um, civil liberties. So James Monroe basically wanted, he wanted people's people to have fundamental liberties, but they needed to be implemented into a document to ensure that those liberties not only were there for the present, but they were there for not only just the future, but for future generations. And aren't, shouldn't we all be thankful to know that, um, that in a short amount of time, about three or four years after Madison, or after the Constitution was signed, that a Bill of Rights would come about. And of course, that will be discussed in a later podcast. But without the Bill of Rights, I'm not even sure, let alone a Constitution could exist. But, aren't, but shouldn't we be thankful that we are allowed to have free speech, that there is free press, the right to assemble and petition, freedom of religion, um, the, free to, the, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, the right to a fair and speedy trial, the right to, um, the right to be protected from double jeopardy, being, um, being self-incriminated or let alone being tried twice for the same crime. This is where uh, I should say that a lot of other countries around the world who don't have these kinds of rights would give anything in the world to have them. So wherever we are in, in America, let's not take it for granted. It's easy to do it, but don't do it. I try my best not to. And when I read these books or go back and reread stuff like this, I am all the more reminded of just what of just how much sacrifice went into making our Constitution, what it is, and not only just for today, but what sacrifices went into it in 1787 so that it could um, last through multiple generations, which it has done so today. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and when, I'm, when I'll be back on the air again next, we're going to be talking about the Virginia Convention that goes about ratifying the Constitution. So uh, thank you again for letting me um, share with you um, Founding Rivals. Um, we're not done yet, but, um, but we have a lot more ground to cover, and that's going to make it all the wor more worthwhile. Thank you, and have a great weekend, and uh, take care.